In the first half of chapter 3, we considered God's messages that had been entrusted to the Jews, and also, under the fall, the opposing messages the evil one had been trying to get across. As we start reading again in verse 19, Paul will now be delving back into the law, specifically the message of the law, to continue to help us understand the differences between the old and the new. So, God's messages, Satan's messages, and now the message of the law. This is Romans 3. I'll be starting in verse 19. We know what the message of the law is to those who live under it, that every excuse may die on the lips of him who makes it, and no living man may think himself beyond the judgment of God. And with all due respect, Paul, I don't think we know what the message of the law is, especially for those who actually had to live under it. First century Roman Christians, whether they were Jew or Gentile, certainly had some idea. I don't think we have any idea today. At times, we felt the feelings of stumbling into religiosity, like making Christianity overly systematic, but we don't really understand the message, the feeling of living under the law. So, what was the message of the law for those under it? In the last chapter of Exodus, that would be Exodus 40, we see Moses and the Israelites setting up the much-described, long-prepared-for tabernacle on the first day of the first month of the second year since they escaped from Egypt. All the elements are in place. Everything is just right. Then comes verses 34 and 35. And the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So that's the very hopeful and exciting ending of the narrative of Exodus. Then Leviticus begins. At its opening, and from the opening of that very same glory-infused tabernacle, we read the first sentence of this book of the law. Listen. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. In essence, I'm in here, you come and stand there. And stand there for what, Moses might have wondered. Well, for the rules, regulations, ordinances, observances, and ceremonies that will allow some of his people to somewhat approach the glories of God. You see, the law gives us our best understanding of the almost limitless divide between the holiness of God and the brokenness of mankind simply because of how impossible its requirements were. 18 straight chapters of instruction, all the do's and don'ts needful for daily life, then culminate with this. This is in Leviticus 19.1. Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Which are words God then repeats twice in chapter 20 and once in 21 before landing on, in my mind, the message Paul is talking about here. To me, the message of the law is Leviticus 26. For 
because God is holy and they were likewise called to be holy and because he was only really known to them in a spatial sense, meaning in the physical tented structure we call the tabernacle and of course the cloud and fire, the message of the law, all about holiness and outward physical observances, almost necessarily ends with outward blessings and curses. The message of the law was, do this right and live, or do this wrong and die. And it was all absolutely external. Here's the ways to raise yourself above the flesh, some of you, so that you can learn to deal in my spirit. Again, do this right and live, or do this wrong and die. Those are your only two options. Are we starting to get a sense, at least, of of some of the heaviness of this system? And also keep in mind, this was before all the later additions of tradition, safeguards, and rabbinical law that Jesus himself then later had to battle against. So, it makes absolutely perfect sense to me when Paul continues on in chapter 3, verse 20, with these slightly depressing words. Listen, no man can justify himself before God by a perfect performance of the law's demands. Indeed, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us how crooked we are. Or in other words, under the do this right and live, do this wrong and die reality of the law's blessings and curses, no one will be justified. No one will have fellowship with God. No one will be made righteous. Which, thank you, Paul, and even more truly, thank you, Jesus, then leads us on to these next wonderful words. Listen. But now we are seeing the righteousness of God declared quite apart from the law, though amply testified to by both law and prophets. It is a righteousness imparted to and operating in all who have faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, we who have faith in Jesus Christ now have, without any vestiges of the law, all the righteousness of God, not only around or just imparted to, but, quote, operating in and within us. The righteousness of God is ours in Jesus. But... How far out does this offer of righteousness extend? Like, how much of humanity is in need of this transform, trying to say the word transfusion, pardon me, of a divine goodness? Well, to answer that question, we have to look at the sample set, I might call it. This would be verse 23, famous. For there is no distinction to be made Anywhere, everyone has sinned. Everyone falls short of the beauty of God's plan. Which, let's be honest, is almost always used in every talk, writing, and evangelistic wrap-up as kind of the bad news of the extent of the ravages of sin. No distinction. Everyone has sinned. Everyone falls short is about the worst news every human being in history could ever hear. Unless 
a limitless human brokenness, a limitless divide actually provides cover for a limitless reconciliation. Unless the reality of the complete extent of sin with its corollaries, death and the grave, actually opens the way for God to execute a complete act of eternal atonement. Once, you see, there was a law standing opposed to mankind. Now, there is a man named Jesus, heaven personified. I'll continue. Under this divine system, a man who has faith is now freely acquitted in the eyes of God by his generous dealing in the redemptive act of Jesus Christ. God has appointed him as the means of propitiation, a propitiation accomplished by the shedding of his blood to be received and made effective in ourselves by faith. God has done this to demonstrate his righteousness both by the wiping out of the sins of the past, the time when he withheld his hand, and by showing in the present time that he is a just God and that he justifies every man who has faith in Jesus Christ. Now, at the beginning of this podcast, we went on a little journey through the historical meaning, the feel, the message of living under the burden of the old covenant law. Now, with that in our rear view, I want us to understand this divine system, as Paul calls it, this wonderfully glorious gospel of Jesus, and I want us to understand it in both a contemporaneous and eternal way. I want us to see what he does right now and what he's always done and what, in the eternal sense, he is doing and will always keep doing. In those verses, verses 24 through 26, Paul gives the Romans their first full hearing of his, Paul's, best explanation for grace, redemption, that old-fashioned word propitiation, which is, quote, an act of gaining or regaining the favor or goodwill of someone, unquote, the blood of the cross, the righteousness of God, and the perfect justice of God in dealing with those he justifies. I mean, what an almost overwhelming section. But did you notice, in the midst of my reading those beautiful turns of phrase and those statements of eternal truth, how the full plan of God is given right there in all of its past, present, future, eternal arc across time and really non-time? Did you hear how, as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit laid out this perfect plan and then, of course, perfectly executed it, how it cut across all history and all eternity? Let me re-narrate those verses, 24 through 26. I want you to see what I mean. Listen. In the unknown past, God had appointed Jesus as the means of propitiation. Again, as an act of gaining or regaining the favor or goodwill of someone. In this case, all humanity would therefore uh, thereby be propitiated by the life and death of Jesus. For on a particular historical Friday, it was his generous dealing in the redemptive act of Jesus Christ, a propitiation accomplished by the shedding of his blood, which on any given day since may be received and made effective in ourselves by faith. Again, 
in the present, at any present moment since the cross of Calvary, a man who has faith is now, now freely acquitted in the eyes of God. You see, in the everlasting, ever now space that is outside of time, the eternal, God has done this and had always, cho- had always chosen to do this, to demonstrate his righteousness by the wiping out of what? Now we're back into the space-time construct again. The sins of the past, the time when he withheld his hand, i.e. all the time before the cross and all the time before you personally believed, as well as, quote, showing in the present time, meaning today, that he is a just God forever and ever, and that he justifies right now every man who has faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, for all time, he has chosen to demonstrate his righteousness. In the past, he chose Jesus to do it. On one day, he did it, that we might believe and live. So, presently, we may interact with his life and death, believe, be set free historically and right now, and then may interact again presently with the just God. My friends, past, present, future, and eternity, it is finished. Isn't that just so thrilling? Okay, I'll keep reading. What happens now to human pride of achievement? There is no more room for it. Why? Because failure to keep the law has killed it? Not at all. But because the whole matter is now on a different plane, believing instead of achieving. We see now that a man is justified before God by the fact of his faith in God's appointed Savior and not by what he has managed to achieve under the law. Which I would say brings us to the great compare-contrast of all compare-contrasts, looking at the natural result of the law versus the fruit that flows naturally from the way of Jesus. Consider, under the old covenant, the catch-all command were those words from Leviticus 19. Remember those? Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Then, in success or failure, the Israelites were either rewarded or punished with blessings or curses based on their holy response to God's holiness. The weight of life and death hung on them. Under the new covenant, the new reality as spoken by the life and death of Jesus runs like this. I am holy. I will make you holy. Then, in obedience and grace, the followers of Jesus, by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, may be led from glory to glory by the presence of the holiness of Jesus within. Jesus has already conquered both life and death. Which actually brings us back to where we began. If the natural result of the law was that mixed bag of blessings and curses from Leviticus 26, then the natural fruit of Jesus, by faith, is just blessing upon blessing. 
Before, you might have noticed, I didn't actually read to you anything from Leviticus 26. I kind of thought you'd probably had enough of the heaviness of the law. But now, I want you to hear its words, but actually a bit translated into our new higher plane reality. Here's the remix on Leviticus 26. Walk with me for yourselves and let my Holy Spirit dwell within you. I am the Lord your God. Live in my rest and enjoy the joy of being my temple. I am your Lord. As you follow my commandments and walk the path of my way, my spirit will become a spring within you, watering your life and yielding great crops of his fruit. Together, we will harvest the fruit of your life. I, the vine, you, the branch, and you will be fruitful and I will be your fruitfulness. I will grant you my peace, and you will rest in me, and no one and nothing will be able to make you afraid. I have already vanquished the words and works of the evil one. Swords and strife will not be your experience of your days. The enemy may pursue you, yes, but he is powerless in my presence. I have forever chased him away by my finished work. Now I look on you with favor, and I will make you fruitful and increase your fruit, and I will keep the covenant I have made with my Father. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move it out to make room for the new. I have put my dwelling place within you, and I will love you to the moment when you come home. I will walk with you and be your God and you will be my chosen child forever. For I am the Lord your God, Jesus the Christ, who brought you out of bondage so that you would no longer be slaves to the law, sin, and death. I broke the chains of your slavery and set you under the bars of my yoke and enabled you to walk alongside me with our heads held high. All right, let's finish. And God is God of both Jews and Gentiles. Let us be quite clear about that. The same God is ready to justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith also. Are we then undermining the law by this insistence on faith? Not a bit of it. We put the law in its proper place. And what is the proper place for the Old Covenant law? By faith, where does it most properly live? Here's what I would say. In the mind, body, and spirit of Jesus of Nazareth, daily, perfectly walking it out, invalidating the power of sin by obeying it without fault. That's what he did. It's in the offered up life of Jesus on the cross, shedding his blood to forever free us from the curse of sin, which was, by the way, tangled up in the curses of the law. Oh, and this is good. It's also behind the risen Jesus. It's left like his burial garments in the abandoned tomb, finished in favor of the new covenant he now offered us. 
And by the way, it's also under the feet of Jesus as he sits upon the throne of heaven, a king of kings of a kingdom that is founded within all of our remade hearts. Friends, the law has been fulfilled forever in Jesus. And by following him, by his spirit, we actually get to put the law right back in its proper place. Its proper place is in him. Thanks for listening.